industry focus. The podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wild card! Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. It's Monday, January 11th. I'm your host, Jason Moser. And on this week's financial show, we're going to dig a little bit more into a brand new IPO out there in Upstart Holdings. We've got another company looking to IPO here very soon in SoFi. Uh, we're going to take a look at what's in store for banks here as earnings are set to begin on Friday and a little bit more. Joining me this week, it's my man, Certified Financial Planner, Matt Frankel. Matt, how's everything going? Oh, pretty good. As you can see by the background, it's another day in paradise. <laughs> Yeah, it seems that way every week for you. You've got it figured out. You've got it figured out. There's nothing wrong with that at all. Um, Matt, as, as I as I said in the intro there, we're going to talk a little bit about um, a brand new IPO and then a company that's talking about getting ready to IPO. These are two very similar businesses, so um, I'm going to be interested to get your take on them both. Let's go ahead and start, though, with Upstart. And Upstart is a company that just IPO'd, I believe, in December. So this this is brand new to the public markets, uh, but one that I think a lot of folks were excited to see go public because it's another one of those companies that's really helping reshape the space of finance, and in particular, lending, right? I mean, in banking, we've, we've been so used to sort of that stereotypical, stodgy, big bank environment. You just go into the bank, you get your loan, and then that's that. Uh, companies like Upstart are really changing that model around. Uh, so, we wanted to dig into this one today for listeners. Let's start uh, just from the 50,000-foot view here. What does Upstart do? How do they make their money? Well, the like you said, they're a pretty recent IPO. And you know, given the times, like every other IPO, they've shot through the roof since they <laughs> since they went public. Uh, they're up eighty four percent since day one, which is four weeks ago. So that's really wow. not that much time. Um, Upstart is a personal lender. Um, that's pretty much the what they're what business they're involved in right now. Um, when we get to SoFi, you'll see they're in you know a bunch of different types of financial businesses. Upstart is a personal lender, and like most of these fintechs, their main premise is that traditional banks either are not convenient enough or just don't serve the population well enough, and they aim to solve that problem. In Upstart's case, they want to assess risk better than banks do. Using um, you know, they're, they're, They were founded by former Google people, um, just if, if that helps. Um, so, they want to assess ri- true risk, as they put it. Um, they use over 1,600 data points, not just the FICO score, they use 1,600 consumer data points to get a really good picture of someone's risk profile. For example, did you know that uh, having a college degree is an indicator of better loan um, performance? So seems reasonable. Seems reasonable. Right. So they use things like that. Um, you know, if someone has a you know mediocre credit score but they just got out of college, um, that's something they would consider in their in their algorithm. Um, they also have because of their kind of you know, thousand over a thousand data points, they're willing to look at consumers that have lower credit scores than a lot of other personal lenders. Um, according to our review on the on our Ascent Personal Finance page, uh, Upstart loans with as low as a 580 FICO score, which is well into the to the poor credit range. So 
they're targeting that that kind of the the overlooked consumers by traditional banks. They make personal loans of up to fifty thousand um, dollars. They've made over six hundred thousand loans so far. Um, they're growing pretty impressively. The revenue grew forty four percent in twenty twenty, which I mean. I wouldn't expect a, a lender to grow that much in in 2020, but that's that, so that's pretty impressive. Um, and the, the thing that really stood out to me about that 600,000 statistic: 70% of the loans they close are fully automated, meaning that meaning that they don't have like no labor costs in, involved in, in in starting them. They're just done by the the algorithms that the company has developed since they they were founded in 2012. So. It's a pretty that's really impressive, impressive company. Yeah, that's. I mean, that this reminds me a little bit of um, a a company from a little while back. We've talked about it here and there. Uh, a company called Zoom X O O M, not Zoom Video, but but X O O M, which is a financial remittance company that PayPal ultimately acquired. Um, and and Zoom was. Zoom was was a company. I think it was really a little bit ahead of its time, almost in that it was it was kind of at the forefront of this AI powered finance um, model, and and they essentially like remittance isn't anything new, right? Western Union's been doing it for over a hundred years, uh, but but they kind of rested on their laurels, and Zoom got in there and essentially started using artificial intelligence and data points and, and automation in order to make this an easier um, experience. And also along the way, really, and this was a statistic that stood out to me with Upstart, in 75% reduction in loss rates in, in regard to those loans that they're, that they're lending out there. And I think it really, t- it's a testament to the power of all of those data points that you were talking about, because that was that was an advantage that Zoom really built out um, in in building their their risk model was ultimately building out these data points that help them assess risk far better than these than these traditional players in that remittance space. And and ultimately, what it resulted in Zoom was really taking a lot of share. PayPal saw that, jumped in there, made the acquisition before they got too big. It made sense. I was a little bitter, as listeners probably know. That's okay. <laughs> don't worry. I still own PayPal, so we got part of it there. Uh, but it just showed it showed me, really, even back then, the power of using that data in order to assess risk better. It, it's not just lip service. It really does work. Yeah. And I mean, the, it's on that note, it's interesting to point out how Upstart makes its money. Upstart's not a bank itself. Right, um, like a lot of these fintechs, they partner with banks. Upstart gets referral fees. They use their algorithms to find credit-worthy borrowers that the system has overlooked, and partners with banks who make the actual loans. And Upstart gets kind of a referral fee for its services. So Upstart is not dependent on it's it's not taking on a lot of credit risk. In other words, yeah. So it's 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 a fee income business model. They're 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 a connector. They connect banks with with customers that they otherwise wouldn't connect with. So it's a, it's an interesting business model. They claim there are millions of of potential borrowers that that are credit worthy, but not by traditional you know FICO scores and other bank metrics. I I think that's probably right. And I mean, I think I think you're seeing we've we've seen some adjustments to the FICO score in order to make it a little bit more modern and account for today's consumer. Um, another another company. Uh, that we've talked about on the show before in a firm. Uh, I think John Maxfield and I did a show a little while back where we went through a firm's S1, and there was just an interesting data point in there uh, that really spoke to how consumers view 
the state of finance today. It's it's really gone beyond just banks, and it's more about tech companies partnering with banks. And, and just some numbers behind that, a, a survey that was conducted by the Harris Poll back in 2020, way back in 2020, <laughs> said that 64% <laughs> of Americans would consider purchasing or applying for financial products through a technology company's platform instead of a traditional financial services provider. That sentiment rises to 81%. For America's uh, Americans aged between eighteen and thirty-four years, so I mean, there is data there that shows more and more consumers, particularly even younger consumers, really are trusting of a lot of these tech companies that partner with um, financial service providers in order to ultimately get done whatever whatever they need to get done. But on, on a similar note, like that that age group you were just referring to, a lot of them skew toward being self-employed. Another yeah. area where banks. I mean, myself included. I mean, I'm not in the 18 to 29 age group anymore. That'd be nice. No. But I, I am in the self-employed group. And that's a group that historically banks have not been very easy to deal with. Um, I mean, I don't, know if, I, I, you, I don't know if you've ever been self-employed, but if you go to apply for a mortgage or a car loan or something like that, there's a lot of jump of hoops that banks make you jump through. Um, it, it, it's a mar- And that's a market that this non-traditional credit model by companies like Upstart can really help solve. Yeah. Yeah. I've never been self-employed, um, but I did, you know, I, I worked at Bank of America for a couple of years and I was a loan officer there. And I did go through the process of getting some small business administration loans done for folks who were self-employed. And and even back then, granted, this was, this was uh, wow, 15 years ago, maybe even more. Um, it, but even then, I mean, it, it, I, I was just astounded at how difficult it was. And you could see the frustration from the clients when they came in and you had to call them back in or you had to call for more documentation and needed another signature. And, and I mean, technology then wasn't where it is today. Uh, so I can imagine I can imagine that uh, it really resonates with that younger consumer. Uh, let's talk a little bit about what the advantages of this business really are. I mean, I think we've, we've really we've, we've honed in on one there in artificial intelligence and using data to make decisions. What else stands out uh, to you uh, about this business that makes it special? Like the technology is the the proprietary element of this by far. Is is that algorithm um, that that the whole non-traditional risk model that they're doing um, that they're, and, and the fact that they're willing to really bend on FICO scoring. Um, a lot of other lenders, uh, SoFi, which we're about to talk about in a few minutes, um, is follows a non-traditional lending model, but also wants to pursue generally high credit borrowers. So they're not, they're, Upstart's really pursuing that, I'd call it, kind of call it the mid-level credit, like the people with fair credit that all the other companies are overlooking and they try to do that area of the market better than everyone else. And that's, that's if so far, like you said, um, a 75% reduction in, in loss ratios, it looks like it's working so far. So if that technology <laughs> is really that good, then that's a big competitive advantage all by itself. Yeah, it can be. And certainly it does seem like this is another business with, uh, I don't. I don't want to say founders leading the way is necessarily a competitive advantage, but it's it's certainly a sign. Um, it's it's a sign that leadership 
is is in the same boat as investors. I mean, this this is a company. I mean, one of the co-founders, David Gerard, who's a CEO of the business and a co-founder, owns uh, I think somewhere in the neighborhood of sixteen percent of the shares. It feels like this is a good management story too. Yeah, and, and to be fair, I'm usually more excited about a founder-owned business, you know, years after its IPO. Yeah. Um, you know, most of the big tech companies that are have gone public recently are founder-led. But no, that that is a big advantage, especially when one of them still has a lot of skin in the game like that. Um, I mean, this is a the company right now has just under a four billion dollar market cap. So you said about a sixteen percent stake. That's that he could stand to make billions if this goes well. Oh sure. So um, that's you know I mean that's a big big motivation. I mean, I know money is not the biggest motivating factor for everybody, but you got to think it's. It's there. It's <laughs> listen. <laughs> money, money makes people do a lot of things. There's no doubt about it. Um, yeah, let, let's just let's wrap up with some of the some of the risks or things that we're just keeping our eyes on here. I mean, I, I think that with any any of these types of businesses, particularly in this uh, current market, the way IPOs have been received. I mean, valuation, at least in the near term, valuation has to be at least. A concern. Now, with that said, I mean this is also a business that actually has recorded—I uh, can't believe it—positive net income. Matt. This thing is actually profitable. It is. Um, <laughs> at the same time, it's trading for about twenty times sales, not earnings. Yeah. Twenty times mm-hmm. sales. Yeah, that's a big multiple to pay. This is—I mean, a lot. It, it, to be fair, it's not the only tech company with a high value. <laughs> um, but I gotta believe the biggest risk is not just valuation. It's it's got to maintain its growth, and there's a huge element of competition risk in this space. I mean, right now, like I said, their biggest competitive advantage is their proprietary technology. If they can address that area of the of the lending market, which is millions of people, better than anyone else, they're going to keep growing like this. If someone else comes along and there's no shortage of alternative lenders in the market these days, that space is really blown up. I mean, it started with Lending Club, uh, you know, about seven or eight years ago, and now there's. If you go to the Ascents page, we have reviews on like you know a dozen of them. So if someone else figures out how to address that market equally well or better, um, then you could see a lot of competition risk. So it's not a no risk investment, and it's really priced for a lot to go right in the next couple of years. Well, definitely one we'll enjoy following and, and covering here on the show for sure. It's right up our alley. Uh, let's pivot over to another business that plays, it seems, in the same sandbox, maybe a little bit of a different uh, focus there on who they're lending to, but uh, we're, we're looking at SoFi, social finance, also known as, as SoFi, uh, looking to go public here possibly soon um, through the, the SPAC vehicle. And, and before we get into SoFi, real quickly, let's just give our give our listeners a quick rundown on how SPACs work. I mean, I know that you you had a great uh, conversation not all that long ago with Dan Kaplinger, and and, and you had gone over some of the uh, some of the basics here in regard to SPACs and how they work. Just for our listeners, uh, give us a quick primer there on SPACs. So the brief overview is a SPAC, which stands for Special Purpose Acquisition Company. It's a, a as the name implies, it's a special type of company <laughs> that is it's formed for one reason to acquire a, a private business and take it public. A SPAC goes public. It has no business operations when it goes public. Um, so it goes public, raises usually a few hundred million dollars. Then it seeks an acquisition target. That acquisition target gets that few hundred million dollars plus some extra 
uh, capital infusion. And in exchange, they combine these businesses go public under the SPAC's already public entity. So the idea is that it simplifies the traditional process of IPOs, you know, the IPO roadshow, they need to hire new underwriters, things like that. By combining with an already public company, it makes it easier for some of these companies to go public. That's why we're seeing this giant wave of SPAC IPOs. Uh, DraftKings was a big one uh, last year. Uh, Nikola was a, a SPAC IPO. Opendoor was a very recent SPAC IPO. Uh, Virgin Galactic was another one. Um, so all, all these companies are electing to go public via SPAC. Um, it has some advantages, cost and otherwise. So um, the new one, uh, SoFi, is going public via they've it's it's been agreed upon so it's going public under a spec that you can buy on the market right now the ticker symbol is ipoe um it's one of chamath's um specs um, yeah you know, yeah so he this is, this is his fifth spec wow the first three were virgin galactic like i just mentioned uh open door technologies which just finalized and Clover Health, which just finalized. Oh, yeah. So the fourth one, IPOD, is still looking for its acquisition target, and that's in the market right now. You can you can still buy that one pre-deal. Um, it's trading at a huge premium because he's been so successful with his other ones. Yeah. Um, and then there's a sixth one, IPOF, which is the largest one so far. It's a billion-dollar spec that is still looking for its acquisition target. So IPOE... Um, Social Capital Head of Sophia uh, 5 is the official name for it, but just call it IPOE. Let's keep it simple. Yeah. Um, they, ra- they raised about $800 million, um, and the various other investors are contributing another $1.2 billion to acquire SoFi, um, which is a- an online uh, financial business. So that's the brief overview of how SPAC works. We'll get into the actual business shortly, but that's that's the general idea of how this merger is happening. They formed a company, which another name for a SPAC is a blank check company. Yeah. So they, so they they raised all this money. The company has no operations other than having this giant bank account with money, um, and they're using it to take SoFi, which is a popular financial company, public. Yeah, SoFi is popular. It's been around for a little while, and it's interesting to see how this business has evolved because it really started out as an alumni funding uh, funded lending model that ultimately was just helping students and graduates uh, deal with student loans, right? I mean, it was something that was helping students deal with student debt, um, and it, it really has grown, I mean, to be kind of a full-fledged uh, banking style operation here and, and I and I saw that with SoFi um, unlike uh, unlike upstart here SoFi has actually gotten conditional approval for its national bank charter app- application yeah so far to to my knowledge upstart has no desire to become a bank right um, SoFi is a lot more than a personal lender at this point so they applied for and received conditional approval like you said in October. They got conditional approval for a bank charter. And if approved, they're going to be a bank. Um, that's a big cost of capital advantage when it, for a lender. Um, if you can make your own loans and not go through an intermediary, you know that's one less person you have to pay. So it, it can save money. Um, SoFi has a lot of operations there. Like you said, they started as kind of a, a community-based student lender. Um, 
you know, refinancing loans, issuing private student loans. They've also um, they've branched out into mortgages. Um, when my wife and I were in the market for a second home, I got a mortgage quote from SoFi. They were the they were the lowest one we saw. Um, we have we then COVID happened, so we you know didn't actually do it. But yeah, but yeah. SoFi does have a, a big mortgage operation. Uh, we mentioned personal loans, the student loans. They just uh, launched a credit card product on the lending side. They also have a high yield savings platform. They have an investing platform um, where you can buy and sell stocks, similar to a Robinhood, I would call it. Um, but honestly, doing a better job of educating the consumer and kind of you know really bringing like the community into the let the investing process, not just trading. Um, they have a robo advisor. There's a, there's a lot going on in this. There, there's an insurance division that partners with other insurance companies to offer products to their members. Of I mean, they have 1.8 million members. I mentioned that Upstart has done a little over 600,000 loans in its history. SoFi has 1.8 million members and all of these other products. Wow. So, so a banking charter really makes sense for them. And I mean, that's something they have to upkeep, obviously, that comes with responsibilities and regulations and ratios and requirements but um as you mentioned i mean that can be a real uh, a real source of capital which is their business right uh, you know, so, so upstarts trying to become a financial technology company that partners with banks and just to help them do their existing business better sofi wants to be the bank of the future um and another really interesting part of the business is the galileo financial that they acquired in 2020 um, they've paid $1.2 billion to acquire it. It's essentially an, a payment processing business um, with about 50 million accounts. Um, it, it's, it's, it helps businesses you know, process checks and things like that. Um, that could be a big part of the story. It just kind of increases the technology umbrella that, that they have. And one thing that really surprised me about this SPAC deal is that the valuations really doesn't seem that insane. Um, they're valuing SoFi at about $8.65 billion, including the $2.4 billion in new money that's coming in. So when I mentioned Upstart, which is just a personal lender, just 600,000 loans, I mean, that's impressive, but comparatively, it's small, is trading at a $4 billion market cap. So SoFi, including $2.4 billion of new capital, is about $8.65 billion. That doesn't sound like too outrageous of a valuation with 1.8 million members, this proprietary digital payments platform that's been very successful that they acquired. They're expecting about a billion dollars of revenue this year alone. Um, so so I, I mentioned Upstart's trading at about 20 times revenue. SoFi's trading at about eight times revenue, and that's including about $2.4 billion in cash. So it's not a surprise that the, the shares of the SPAC took off after this announcement. And it's that's that's why it's because the valuation's lower than a lot of people thought SoFi would end up going public for. Um, the the SPAC trades for about twice its par value, um, which implies a market cap of about seventeen billion once it actually goes public. But it still sounds pretty reasonable when you consider what some of these other fintechs are trading for, considering just kind of the the wide scope of what they do. Well. Matt, speaking of fintech and banking of the future and all that jazz, uh, we've seen over the past twenty four hours. Uh, we don't we don't get into Bitcoin very often in, on the show. That's not really what uh, what we cover here. But by the same token, 
We've seen Bitcoin pull back considerably here over the last 24 hours. I think it's down somewhere in the neighborhood of about 20% here. Um, You have some opinions on the matter. Why don't you... you know, elaborate a little bit for us. <laughs> All right, so now you're, you're going to make me be the bad guy again. Uh, well, well, well. I mean, I've got thoughts too, but I'm going to go ahead and let you start. <laughs> so, well, for one, well, Bitcoin is still several times more than it was at this time last year. So take sure. it with a grain of salt. Sure. Um, Bitcoin hit over $40,000 a coin last week um, and has since pulled back a little bit. Over the past 24 hours alone, it's down about 18%. Right around thirty-two thousand eight hundred, right before we started recording this. So, this kind of gives, regardless of your opinions of Bitcoin, this volatility first makes me tell you to be careful. It's 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 a volatile asset. There are three arguments that I often hear in favor of Bitcoin. I don't. I personally don't own any Bitcoin. I have. I've mined Bitcoin. I, I actually mined about 12 coins in total back in the, in the you know 2012 2013 time frame. Wow. So I yeah, I wish I still had them. <laughs> <laughs> but so maybe maybe that's a little bitterness coming through. Possibly. But but so I understand the concept. I understand how it works. I understand the utility of it. There's three main arguments that I always hear when people tell me I shouldn't own Bitcoin. One is that it's scarce or that it's, it has a limited amount and you can't make any more. One, as um, my colleague Sean Williams has an article on fool.com right now that points out, it would just take a majority of the Bitcoin community to agree to raise that. So yeah. it, you could make more Bitcoin. Sure. I mean, a majority consensus is why we have things like Bitcoin Cash, the kind of offshoot cryptocurrency. Um, so, and not only that, there are, I, I checked right before we came on here, there are 4,308 different cryptocurrencies that are officially recognized right now. <laughs> Good Lord. So when you Jeez. tell me that it's scarce, I mean, and, and of those $270 billion of cryptocurrency value is not Bitcoin. Right. So, you know, if, if Bitcoin's getting too expensive and it's too valuable, people could just use a different one. Sure. Um, there's a reason that there's over a hundred billion dollars in the second largest cryptocurrency. So, I mean, the scarcity argument, I don't totally buy. Number two, the argument that it's a store of value, like gold. For one, uh, forget about the scarcity thing where you can't make more gold, but potentially there could be more Bitcoin made. Forget about that. I don't want a store of value that can fluctuate by 20% in a day. That's not a store of value. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I'm not interested in that. <laughs> I mean, I mean but... I, like my savings account is a store of value because its value doesn't fluctuate. I mean, you can say that inflation over time, it'll fluctuate, but not by 20% in a day. Um, you know, so this is why people were, you know, when, when uh, I think it was Venezuela that had a hyperinflation not long ago, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I believe you're right. Um, that's why people weren't storing their storing value in that that currency because it was very volatile and unpredictable at that point. So, the store of value thing I don't really buy at the moment. If Bitcoin stabilized, like it it would be it's a it's a volatile day when the when the U.S. dollar moves by one percent in either direction against say the euro. If Bitcoin got to that level of stability, I might buy the store of value argument a little bit more. But for the time being, it's not a store of value. Argument three that I get, and this is the one that's going to make people really mad, is that there's no real use case for it. Um, Okay, so let me give you one statistic. 
you can spend Bitcoin at about 2,300 merchants right now. At 2,300 different retailers. Yeah. That sounds impressive, right? I guess, but how many, how many out, out of a total number of, of what? If you just look at businesses that have at least one employee, there are 7 million small businesses in America. Yeah, I was thinking that was, that was where we were going. <laughs> That's not a lot of, of, of penetration into the market. So, and, and Bitcoin's been around for a decade now. It's been pretty well known by every, like everyone's at least known the term Bitcoin since about 2014, 2015. It's, it hasn't proven a useful as a useful currency over the US dollar. There's, especially with all these fintech innovations that we're talking about. It, with, with contactless payments, um, you know, I can pay by just tapping my phone on something. I don't need actual US dollars to pay in US dollars anymore. Um, it, it's become easy to transact in foreign currencies. Oh, um, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Which one of the biggest use cases for Bitcoin as a currency is that it could be a worldwide universal currency. And now it's easier than ever to kind of switch from one currency to another. So I don't buy the the use case for Bitcoin. I, I don't see widespread adoption happening. Um, I mean, you can make the argument that PayPal and Square are, are on board with Bitcoin and PayPal has said that it wants to make Bitcoin usable at its merchants. But... I still don't see the benefit to converting my U.S. dollars to Bitcoin to be able to use them on PayPal when I can just take my U.S. dollars and use them on PayPal. So I don't see I don't see the use case that's going to appeal to Main Street. To Main Street, I get the early adopters who love the technology and things like that. I get why they see a big use case in it. I really do, but I don't see it translating to widespread mainstream adoption anytime in the next decade or or more. And as a reminder for all of our Bitcoin bull listeners, you can reach Matt on Twitter at TMFMathGuy. That's at TMFMathGuy. <laughs> I thought you were about to give I'm out my address kidding. or something. No, 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 no. I wouldn't do that. Um, I, listen, I mean, you, you know, this, like I said, this is not, we don't cover a lot of Bitcoin on this show because it's just, I, I think it's it's really, it stands on its own. It probably deserves its own hour. Um, I, I think you make a lot of good points there, and I'm sure there are folks out there who would take the other side of the coin, so to speak. Um, I, I, I'm with you. I mean, I listen, I'm not saying there's not a use case. I'm not saying it's not special. I, maybe it is, but you know what? I don't care. That's what it boils down to is I just don't care. My time is better spent doing something else focusing on what I do know. I know what I don't know. I just don't know enough about Bitcoin to really to, to really even care. So I, I just kind of leave it at that. Like I said, I make all those points with all due respect to the Bitcoin fans, um, I, people who love the technology. Like, I get it. Like yeah. I said, I've mined Bitcoin. I've used Bitcoin. I lived off Bitcoin for a day just to see if it was possible. Like <laughs> I, I, I get it. But I just don't see the mainstream case for it at this point. Yeah. I, I, so I say it with all due respect. So all due respect, that's not going to prevent yeah. a, a Reddit thread from popping up. But yeah, well, you gave it the old Ricky Bobby, right, man? All due respect. You said all due respect, Matt. I, I appreciate <laughs> that. Well, Matt, before we wrap things up here, you know, we normally like to wrap our shows up with ones to watch for our listeners this week because banks are getting ready to kick off earnings season on Friday. But we wanted just to go ahead and get your take on a couple things you're watching here for banks this coming earnings season. So I like I, you, my pick last week was Wells Fargo, so I'm going to stick with that as my one to watch because they report their earnings on Friday, which is the first day of of bank earnings. Um, 
I like Wells Fargo, especially as a gauge of what's going on in the banking sector, because they're the closest thing to a pure play, just savings and loan of the big banks. So the things I'm watching are the default rate. We're going to get the fourth quarter earnings. The last time we heard from Wells Fargo was the third quarter when the pandemic had kind of not subsided, but was definitely like at a lull. Um, there was still some stimulus being pumped into the market. I, the um, the the unemployment benefits for for a lot of in a lot of cases were still going on in the third quarter, for example. Um, so some sti- some stimulus ran out in the fourth quarter. So I want to see how that's playing out. Um, I want to see their expenses. The um, new CEO Charlie Scharf has prioritized expense reduction, uh, saying he wants to cut I think ten billion dollars of expenses off the bank. Um, I want to see any progress on that. And now that the bank is allowed to pay dividends and buy back shares, um, you know, the Federal Reserve said banks can start doing this in the first quarter. Um, I want to see any commentary toward when that might start to happen and to what extent. So I'm not necessarily thinking Wells Fargo is going to pop on the earnings announcement, but there's a lot of details that are going to kind of play into my investment thesis that I talked about last week. Well, that sounds very, very good, Matt, and I think that's going to do it for us this week. I uh, Listen, man, I, I appreciate you taking the time to jump on as always. It was a really fun conversation. I appreciate you digging into Upstart and uh, teaching us a little bit more about that business. And hey, you know, let's, uh, let's not be a stranger. I look forward to seeing you next week. All righty. I'll see you then. All right. And remember, as always, you can reach out to us on Twitter at MF Industry Focus, or you can drop us an email at industryfocus at fool.com. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Thanks, as always, to Tim Sparks for putting the show together for us. For Matt Frankel, I'm Jason Moser. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.